John chapter 1, we continue our study tonight. John chapter 1, we kicked off our time in this portion of God's Word last week, and uh, we are grateful to uh, come again to this portion of Scripture. You know, uh, it won't be long, I hate to inform you if you're shocked by this, but uh, Christmas is coming quickly. Yeah. I, I love Christmas. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I'm grateful. It's uh, the second most important day on my calendar. Uh, you say, well, what's the first? Well, that's Easter. Uh, I love the Christmas story, but the culmination of God's plan is played out and celebrated at Easter. And I, you know, uh, some of you have known me for a while. You may know uh, uh, one, one thing that, you know, you ask a group of people, tell us something that most people don't know about you. Well, if anything like that ever happens to me, I say, well, I don't have the sense of smell. It's not that I don't smell sometimes. I just don't have the sense of smell uh, to uh, observe that. Uh, so I'm, I'm, my wife helps out, and I make sure I you know, take daily showers, even if I don't need them, uh, those kind of things. But uh, uh, one of the things about Christmas, a lot of folks, just the smells. Uh, real Christmas trees, some folks swear by real Christmas trees, uh, the the food that's being prepared, the candies, the cakes, the, the, just the hustle and bustle of the season, the, the fact that wherever you are, like the song said, people just say, they say hello and they tip their hat or they say good morning to you in a way that, you know, I, I don't notice this the rest of the year. It's just a special time. That's true. I love the part that we get to do as believers and especially in our traditions of the church, we get to read the Christmas story. Um, I have to tell you a story. <laughs> uh, I taught at uh, I taught Bible at uh, Briarcrest Christian School here in town. The high school classes for several years, right before I came on staff with Brother Steve uh, 15 years ago, and and uh, one day we had just finished the fall semester final exam in one of my classes, and and everybody had turned in their paper, and we had a few minutes before the bell would ring for their break before they took their second. Uh, test of the day and so I was just sitting there gathering the papers from the class and getting myself ready for the next hour as well and uh, I wrote up on the board I got up and and whiteboard and I said uh, now I want y'all to remember I know you're going to to Christmas holiday next couple of weeks I don't want to put any undue burden on you but I just want you to know we're going to memorize and I wrote out Luke chapter 2 and the verses that include the Christmas story just wrote them out. I said, one of the first things, projects you're going to do when you return from the holidays is we're going to start the New Testament. We've been doing Old Testament in the fall, New Testament in the spring. We're going to memorize the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. And so I sat down, thought I was clear, thought I was, you know, in good space. And I sat down at my teacher desk and all the little students' desks were in line and girl was sitting right here. I mean, she was right at the corner of my desk and in her little uh, student desk. And she leaned over to me and she said, Dr. Crouch. I said, yes, how can I help? She said, is that the one with Tiny Tim? I said, I have job security, Lord. Thank you. <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> but when it comes to the Christmas story, we often do read Luke. We often maybe read Matthew, but when you come to John, it's just really a brief memorization. And the Word became flesh. That's the Christmas story, according to John. Now, it's not that he wouldn't have held it to be important. He just understood that there was a unique calling that he had in writing his, the fourth gospel. We talked about that last week, that the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are synoptic gospels. That's the, a term that scholars use as we study them because optic means, you know, again, you go to the opti, uh, optrician, uh, optician, whatever, I'm getting mixed up here, but uh, to check on your eyes. That's how you see. Well, sin, S-Y-N, means same, similar. 
A synonym is a word that means the same thing. Synoptic means that they look at the perspective of Christ's life the same way. But John didn't take that route. It wasn't that he was against that or, or the testimony of Scripture doesn't tell us that he thought he could do better. It's just that his calling in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was to not so much just inform us but to transform us, to tell us why it was important. And he even tells us that. He says, I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And so as we begin again this afternoon, our study of this book of the Bible, I want to begin in verse 14 where it says there as it begins, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we begin this passage of Scripture and looking into it, I pray that You would expose Yourself to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That He would be very present in this place, manifest in this place. And that our hearts would be turned afresh with renewed vigor and encouragement and a, and a passion, Father, like those that we're studying tonight to tell of the one who is the Word of God. Father, we thank you for every person that's here as well. That as we gather tonight, we come not in a vacuum. We've got lives and, and relationships and issues and concerns that are on our hearts and yet we also called to, to, for a moment, remember that in the midst of all of that, not apart from it, but in the very midst and thick of life, you are very present. That your word is applicable, is relevant, and is sufficient for our needs. May we know that in a fresh way tonight. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we begin our study tonight, we're just, again, going to walk verse by verse. First, as we look at verse 14 of chapter 1, I want to encourage you that his, that to look with me at his glorious incarnation. That's the, the term we use, that God became flesh. The word became flesh. That's called the incarnation. If you like chili con queso or carne queso, uh, the, or that sort of... Uh, meal, you like uh, that variety of food or culinary delights, uh, you'll know that carne means flesh. Well, that's what we talk about when we say the incarnation. God took on human flesh. The Word, Jesus Christ, is fully God in the flesh. And so His glorious incarnation begins us in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. First of all, it is very important that you and I understand when we think about this glorious incarnation that we know that Jesus became fully or truly human. He didn't just appear. There were those even early on in the Christian era that believed that Jesus Christ, because he was fully God, he couldn't have come so near to us and taken on human flesh and really become a fully or truly human being. Because that would, that would take the holiness of God and put it with sinful man. And that was not the case of what Scripture was telling us. God took on flesh in the sense that He is fully human in the fact of everything that you and I encounter, He encountered. He did not take on our sin uh, nature. He didn't have a, a tendency or propensity towards sin like you and I are born with. Uh, my son-in-law is here tonight, sitting with my wife up here. And uh, listen, I have four wonderful grandchildren. I may have even mentioned that lately. Last week, perhaps. Uh, I talk about them a lot, and I'm proud of them. But just get four of them together, and, and you, 
you realize there's a propensity to sin. And I, I'm really thinking it's his fault. But, uh, but right now, you know, to be honest with Scripture, I realize that it probably came through me as much as anyway uh, because we all have a congenital defect called sin. And we pass it on to our children. They don't have to learn to be sinners. They're born that way and they manifest it. They make it known by the choices and the things they do, just like you and I do. The reality is that Jesus Christ took on human nature, not a sin nature, but a human nature so that he could fully identify with us. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. But the reality is when we begin verse 14, the first thing we can say, the wonderful grace of God that we've been singing about tonight is first and foremost seen in the fact that God willingly gave us the opportunity to see him in the person in the humanity of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how so? Well, look with me. If you want to take your Bibles, just a moment, put it your finger there in, first, in the first chapter of John, and look with me back in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And there in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Now, I just want to encourage you. That's a very important phrase, a very important passage in understanding the incarnation of what, of Jesus Christ, of what that means for you and me. That Jesus Christ was born of a woman. That is, he had a human nature. Now look with me again, if you'll turn just a little further into Philippians. You have Galatians and then Ephesians and Philippians chapter 2. One of the famous New Testament hymns that we uh, are familiar with. It's included in uh, Paul's uh, letter here to the Philippian church. In, uh, beginning in verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 7, it says there, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness or the form of men. Not just that he would, it's not here saying, well, he, he looked like or he had a similar uh, uh, likeness or uh, model of man, but he became man is what Paul is telling us. He emptied himself, not in the fact that he stopped being God so that he could for a season be man, but he humbled himself. He took away anything that would, would, would say, no, you need to hold on to your Godhead. But he humbled himself and became the servant, the servant you and I needed in the sacrificial life he lived and the life he gave on Calvary. And as such, he emptied himself and fulfilled the role of the most wonderful servant in all of history. Now look with me again in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 not only tells us his glorious incarnation because he truly is human, God in the flesh, but he also says there in verse 14, and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is uh, to tabernacle, to set up a tent. It is a temporary situation. Jesus Christ came into this world as God, fully God, fully man. And as such, he dwelt with us. He made his temporary dwelling here. He'd always been in the past and he would always be in the future but the reality is for a time, he was mortal man. He was, all the, he was fully God and fully man, and they beheld him. Look with me again in verse 14. They beheld him, or they saw his glory. They saw what he was. It wasn't that they saw a ghost or a spiritual uh, uh, aberration, but that they saw a man just like they were. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, this same John, if you take your Bibles and turn back to the end of the New Testament where we read the letters of John in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. If you read with me in 1st John chapter 1. Verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and, get this, touched with our hands. 
concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What is he referring to? Jesus Christ. He's saying, we touched him. It's not like some movie where you pass through some spirit entity or something where your hand just won't find solid ground. They said, we were there. We talked with him. We heard him. We saw him. And yes, we touched him. He was a real human being. It's incredibly important that you and I understand that the glorious incarnation is key to the gospel. Jesus Christ came to be our substitute. And the only way he could do that is becoming a man and identifying with us fully as human beings. To be, as it says in the New Testament as well, that he was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows, yes. He understood the pain that this life, this fallen world has. And he was tempted in every way like as we are, yet he was without sin. There's no sin that you and I face off against tonight or any other day, any other moment that Jesus Christ hasn't already in his earthly life faced off against as well. You say, well, wait a minute, that can't be true. There's all kinds of things that now exist that didn't exist at the time of the first century. Well, that's true in, in, in measure. But the type of temptations that you and I face are not new. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us there's nothing new under the sun. What does it mean there? Not that there's no new trinket, new widget that we uh, use today that wasn't around 2,000 years ago. But the kinds of temptations that this world affords us, offers us, woos us with, were still the same kinds of temptations the areas and aspects of humanity's life and existence that were being tempted of Jesus in his day and everyone else throughout the ages. There is nothing, again, new that you and I face that Jesus, you say, well, Jesus never faced this. Yes, he did. In the form of temptation, he did. Look with me again. Not only was he truly human and not only did he tabernacle with us for a season, But the Bible here in verse 14 tells us that the word is full of grace and truth. That is, we'll find out later in this passage, we read it, that the law came through Moses, was given to us through Moses. But grace and truth have been given, have been received through Jesus Christ. You and I need to understand, Jesus Christ was not half God, half man, half grace, half truth. He was fully God, fully man. And in describing his character, in describing how he uh, uh, revealed himself to those closest, John, the beloved apostle, says he was full of 100% grace and 100% truth. And don't you and I need that kind of Jesus We need, not only do we need individually for our salvation and for our sanctification and for our growth in Christ and in faith, but listen, the more more I look around, the more our world needs to have Christians who embody the life of Christ, who are the, the hands and feet of Christ, who are themselves 100% fully, overwhelmingly, abundantly gracious but also men and women who do not, do not back up, do not hesitate, do not mitigate, do not water down truth. Last Wednesday night, as we left this room, I walked around the hallway and we were talking with some folks. And, and as I was walking, I noticed that one of my life group members was also, she was walking down the hall toward the west lobby area. But she was on her phone, and, and uh, when we caught up with her just for a moment, I said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, well, I, I, I'm a, a little bit concerned. And I stopped, and I said, well, what are you concerned about? She said, well, I just got a text from my son, and he's a college student at the U of M, and he's saying that they are in lockdown, 
And uh, there's there a shooter in the area. I said, well, oh, I'm sorry. Is, is there, has anybody been hurt? She said, well, no, I don't think anybody there has been hurt, but, but they're just they're waiting to see what's happened because this person has still not been caught. And I said, oh, well, I'm grateful that he's in a safe place and he's locked down, and we'll, you let us know if anything happens. I really had no clue what was going on. Didn't, had not heard any news report, didn't know anything myself. But you and I now know what was unfolding. Tragic, tragic situation for our city, for the families of those who were killed that night, others that were injured, and it really has hurt our city's morale. If it wasn't already devastated by the kidnapping and death, the murder of Eliza Fletcher. Let me share with you something that grace and truth informs me. And I, you know, I, I say these kind of things and my wife, she's probably, what is he going to say next? That's okay. She's learned to live with it. <laughs> I want to see, I would love to hear that Ezekiel Kelly, that mayhem murderous young man of last Wednesday night, had the opportunity to hear the gospel and give his heart and life to Jesus Christ. I do. And I would love to know that he had been so transformed by that, that he really had a confidence that not only had he been forgiven of his sins, but that he also was headed for heaven. I really do want that. I want to be fully clear. I want Ezekiel Kelly to know the Lord. But full of grace and truth also says that as a believer in Jesus Christ, I also believe the whole counsel of God and that Ezekiel Kelly, while I want him to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if he is proven in a fair and just trial to be guilty of what he has been charged with, he needs to face the consequences without any mitigation, any reduction, ladies and gentlemen, the scriptures clearly say an eye for an eye. Yeah, I thought that would be the quiet moment. You see, we often, as I tell, told you last week, we often have people who would love to say, aren't we New Testament Christians? Absolutely. But Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And there is more at stake than the life of Ezekiel Kelly in the decision that our courts will make. There is the understanding of our community and every citizen that is in it that there is a law to be held accountable by. That there is a lawgiver who demands justice. As one of our deacons posted, the outcry for justice worldwide is a really good indicator, a pointer. Some would even call it a proof for the existence of God. We live in a fallen world where it is not fair. Those grandchildren, they get in a little squabble. Your grandchildren, they get in a little squabble. Somebody says, hey, that's not fair. Even a child knows that there ought to be fairness. Now, we're often told, well, who, who told you life was supposed to be fair? A law written on our hearts tells us that. And yet also a, a, a sound mind tells us we don't live in a fair world. We live in a fallen world. So if we don't find fairness and justice in this world, where is it coming from? Where is it going to be provided? In eternity. In eternity. But it is the responsibility of government to both provide for the protection of its people and hold sinners 
to account when they break the laws of the land. And the moral law of God that is the foundation and the fountainhead of all that. The scripture says there is a glorious incarnation. That you and I need to be people who desire to be like Christ, full of grace and truth. And let let me just share with you, the very idea of that is a tension-filled challenge. Because we always want, well, you know, we've got one grandchild who's a boy. (laughs) We've got four grandchildren. We've got one grandson. I love Bear. He is awesome. I love my other grandchildren. I mean, hey, Cricket and Butterfly and Rue, they're good too. But Bear's, Bear's just, he's the only boy. So, you know, you just, and there's some times where, you know, he'll, he'll pull some stuff. He's, he's, he's got his, his daddy's charm and he thinks he can get away with it. Uh, but, uh, but we, you know, you're like, oh. And, and most of the time when he comes to Winnie and Doc's, he, he does get away with it. But there's a point at which we have to say, listen, Bear, that's not right. You can't do that. And we're going to have to, you know, let mom and dad know. Now, mom and dad are the ones that are going to execute truth. Okay? Amen. <laughs> Thank you. I was hoping you'd say that. We, we understand that there's got to be that, that balance. But we also remember when we were raising our daughter, and you remember when you were raising your family, or you've walked, worked with children, you, all of us were children at one time, that there's that tension. We know the truth, and we want to show grace, but how do we do that and find that perfect middle ground where we're doing the right thing in the right way and yet doing it in a way that redeems the situation and redeems the person? That's what we're called to. And I don't call you to something light or trivial or easy or something that you can just get down tonight and, and you'll never have to think about it again. This is a lifelong responsibility, a tension that you and I must live with as Christians, that our life manifesting the life of Christ has to be full of both 100% grace and 100% truth. And when we deviate for, onto one or the other side and not hold that tension, we are less than faithful to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The scripture says not only that we understand his glorious incarnation, but verse 15 goes on to say that he had a glad introduction. A glad introduction. Look with me again in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 verse 15 says, John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than than I. For he existed before me. First of all, I want to share with you about this verse that the witness is trustworthy. The witness is trustworthy. The Bible tells us that if you want to know whether a prophet is a true prophet or not, just watch and see, does his prophecy come true? If his prophecy doesn't come true, then he's not a true prophet and you don't need to be listening to him any longer. But if his prophecies are consistently coming to pass, just as he said, then you can believe his testimony. Well, that's exactly what John is saying. Listen, I told you I was the one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. This is he, the one I told you about. I said it was going to happen, and look here, right there he is. That's the testimony of John. In fact, the words that are used here in verse 15 say, the, the John testified, and then the word cried, We have them in past tense, but the language of the Bible uses the present tense. But the way that the language was was orchestrated back then, it was that he not only testified and cried then, but his testimony and his crying continues to reach our ears long after he's dead. Why? Because his testimony is tenacious. It's not just trustworthy, it's tenacious. When we say something about Christ, we need to be so well informed in both grace and truth that when we speak, we can say, this is what the Lord would have me say. This is the testimony of what God is doing in my life. This is how he's working 
through my experience. This is what his Holy Spirit is teaching me. And so our testimony, being consistent with the truth, being consistent with the Word of God, not only is trustworthy in the moment, but it continues to cry out and testify perhaps to generations to come, people that we will never even meet ourselves. But there was a testimony that we planted in time and for eternity that is continuing after us. It was true for John. But not only that, but look with me in verse 15 one more time. John testified about him, that is the word, the the living word, Jesus Christ, and cried out saying, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for or because or due to the fact that he existed before me. Not only is the witness trustworthy. And not only are his words tenacious because they line up with eternal truth, but also when we look at this, the word itself, himself is both transcendent and imminent. You say, wait a minute, you're using big words, Mike. What does that mean? That means he's other. He's transcendent. He's far above you and I. When you, whenever you say God is like, you just need to stop right there. Because every word you and I use to complete that sentence is going to fall short. It's going to be less than what God would have us to understand. So we just begin again with the word. We're, we're going to say God is absolutely exactly the way the Word of God, the, the written Word of God, tells us He is. I'm not going to deviate from that. I'm not going to try to mansplain that to anybody. I'm not going to try to put it in my own words. I'm just going to say again, like we talked last week, what did John the Baptist testify? Of the light. He did not deviate from his testimony. He didn't mitigate it to make people comfortable. He just simply said, this is thus saith the Lord. And when we do that, we can say, yes, God is, he's completely above us. He, the word itself, who's now become flesh, he is before me. He was God of very God before there was anything else. But now he's also imminent. That is, he's right here with us. He's close at hand. Friends, that's not only true for John the Baptist when he saw his relative Jesus Christ coming down to the Jordan to be baptized of him. It was not only true for John the writer of this gospel, John the apostle, when he was penning those words, having just been the the front row seat eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's true for you and me. Because you see, When we think, God, I'm so grateful that you're God above all. That you're apart from time. That you're not not limited by space, time, matter, nothing, nothing. You are limitless in your glory. I'm so glad that you're not caught up and in the drama of my life so that you couldn't see above and beyond what we're facing right now. I'm so grateful also that you're right here with me. That you're the one that will never leave me nor forsake me. Who could do that besides God? No one. The God-man. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified of such. Look at me in verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Not only do we see this evening his glorious incarnation, and not only do we see his glad introduction by John the Baptist, but right here we see his gracious indwelling. John the Apostle is talking about the fact that he has, and he includes not himself, but we all have received, of his, that is the word made flesh, is fullness. The word has the idea of abundance, of completion, of nothing lacking. So when we look at this passage in verse uh, 16, 
And we think about the fact that he, again, graciously now indwells. He gives us, not out of his storehouses alone, he gives us himself. When you and I repent of our sin, when we admit that we are lost and undone and powerless apart from Christ to attain heaven, that there's not enough good in us to ever even approach the entrance into heaven. But because we were not only congenitally doomed because of our sin nature, but we have proven that we're sinners by our selfish choices. We find ourselves lost apart from Him. And as such, we need something that we cannot create or provide or manufacture in and of ourselves. And so we look to Him and when we receive Him, we receive out of the fullness, out of the overflowing abundance of His nature. And that's what we're going to see here in verse 16. There is the, we look there, for of His fullness, that is again that abundance of the Word, He says, we have all received that is, we couldn't, we couldn't produce it ourselves, as I mentioned a moment ago. We can't manufacture this fullness. I've had the joy of the last few weeks talking with several young men who are considering ordination to the gospel ministry. And some of their testimonies are just, just incredible testimonies of grace just like John is talking about having received the full out of the fullness of God's grace these young men would tell of how God had done in similar fashion tremendous works in their lives and I'm not going to reveal anybody's particular story but just to tell you they all had a moment where they realized they could not some of them had been away from God some of them hadn't really had a a heritage of faith. Others had a rich testimony of a family and grandparents and great-grandparents that loved the Lord. and They had been raised in that context. But every one of them came to a realization one day along life's journey that no matter how often they went to Sunday school and vacation Bible school, how often they sang in the choir, memorized scripture for Sunday school, that nothing that they did was sufficient for their salvation. That they needed someone outside themselves to be the Savior. All those verses, one young man said, I realized for the first time that I wouldn't want to die for somebody else. He said, the moment I, die, the moment I realized I didn't want to be someone dying on a cross, he said, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. But that's what Christ did for you. He said, I was broken. He said, all the stuff that I'd learned before just came into full, clear focus. And I knew that it was me that needed a Savior. Not just that the world needed a Savior, though that's true. But I needed to experience the forgiveness of Christ. I was the good kid. I was the one that did everything that everybody thought was right and everybody thought well of me. I hadn't robbed a bank or or murdered anybody. I hadn't done any of that. But I realized that I needed just as much blood to cover my sin as anyone else. You see, we've all received as Christians out of or from his fullness, his abundance. And you know what the wonderful thing is? When we see people come to know Christ and receive that abundance, he's no less than what he was before they received it. He doesn't have just a limited supply. He is the limitless God with a limitless abundance. And out of his fullness, it's always on full. Wouldn't that be great if you could drive around Memphis and do all your business and look at the gas? It's still full. But that's the the reality. God's activity never lessens his ability. Scripture here tells us, again, out of the abundance of the word, there is an acceptance of the word in our lives. And he says right there at the end of verse 16, and grace upon grace. The way the language of the New Testament is, it's, it's, it's a repetition for emphasis. 
It's almost as if John were saying, oh, in good grace, good grace. Oh, it's so wonderful, marvelous grace. Grace without compare. Grace beyond our words to describe. Grace beyond our ability to communicate the fullness and the richness and the depth and the height and the width of it. It's, it's amazing grace. That's the kind of accolades. Let me read because, well, not only do I not have a sense of smell, I don't have the ability to sing. Uh, my wife says, you don't even play the radio well. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash it away? Look, there is a flowing crimson tide. Brighter than snow you may be today. Second verse tonight. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Freely bestowed on all who believe. You are that longing Excuse me, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is, get this, greater than all our sin. That's that kind of idea that John was, was saying. It, this is grace against grace. It's, it's gracious grace. It's good gracious. It's grace. <laughs> it's more than we can describe. That's what gr- the gracious indwelling of Christ communicates into our lives. Not only at the moment of salvation, but throughout our lives in Christ. Look with me in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Not only do we see His glorious incarnation and His glad introduction by John the Baptist and His gracious indwelling in every believer's heart, but we also see His genuine identification with you and me. Look with me. Verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses. Now, a lot of times, New Testament readers would say, Yeah, I'm, I, that, that was good, but the law, that's bad. I'm grateful for Jesus and grace and truth that came through him, but the law was bad. No, the law wasn't bad. You never read, if you read rightly, you never see that the law in the Old Testament, given in the Old Testament times, was seen by New Testament writers and witnesses as being a bad thing. Now, they did have a lot of those who were legalists that they had confrontations with. Jesus' most uh, direct Uh, confrontations were not with sinners, but with Pharisees and Sadducees, the scribes and the priests that had misapplied the truth of the Old Testament. It was grace that gave us the law. It is grace that allows us to read the Old Testament. I'm convinced some of the reasons that we're not so encouraged and zealous and out about the business of sharing Jesus today is because the church as a whole has forgotten why the Old Testament is important. The entirety of the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 1 through the end of, as my father-in-law says, the prophet Malachi, that's the Italian prophet, uh, uh, Malachi, both tell us both ends and everything in between uh, of those two pillars of the Old Testament tell us of our need for a Savior. The law was never intended to save us. It was always to be a schoolmaster, a pedagogue to bring us to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing toward what God would do in Christ one day. Their hearts, if they were the faithful ones, they understood these are all pictures, sacrificial pictures. The, the, the blood that was shed at the, at the tabernacle, the blood that was shed at the temple, all those laws and cleanliness laws and all the things that set them apart from the nations, all was a testimony of what God would one day do in making us new in Christ. And when we don't read the Old Testament, it's hard to say, hey, you need to be saved. 
when no one's understood what it meant to be sinful and separated from Jesus Christ and from God himself because of their lost state in sin. You and I understand it's good grace that we find in Moses' law. But it is greater grace that we see in Christ's life. You see, grace and truth, there's laws that are on the books. You, you understand this in a practical way, a pragmatic way, a public, political way in our society. There are certain laws that, that are on the books. They're written, black print on white paper, and you are, are bound as a citizen to abide by those laws. But I believe as a Christian we can further understand that sometimes while the law is helpful and it provides a base of, of community understanding between individual and, and collected citizens, there's sometimes a law of God that is even more. When The illustration in the New Testament is if you're asked to go a mile, go a second mile. The Romans would require that they carry their, their baggage or anything else that they would ask. They would require the, the people to travel one mile. And, the, and most people had it marked out, a mile from their business or a mile from their, their home or wherever they might be found. They knew exactly where a mile was. And when they got to that point, they were free to set the baggage or the, 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 the cargo down and walk back to wherever they were doing. But Jesus says, if you're asked to go one mile, go a second. You say, why is that? Because that's not just the truth, the law. But he's calling us to a higher standard, a, a, a standard that says even people who are lost and have nothing to do with us, who would, would reject our beliefs and, and hate the Jesus that we love, those are the very people that you and I need to go, not just what the law would require, but that what truth you wanted them to see, the reality of who Jesus is, the grace that you've received, you'd want them to hear about as well. And sometimes the most powerful sermon that you will I, or I will ever proclaim is not what we say with our mouths, but what we do with our lives toward those who need to hear the gospel. The scripture here says, in closing, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Now, very quickly. We see in this last verse, his guiding illustration. His guiding illustration. You say, how is that an illustration? The scripture says in the beginning of verse 18, no one, that is absolutely no one, has seen God at any time. The way that, again, the language of that, right, of John's writing is, is that it's God, no one has seen, no, not ever. It's an emphatic kind of statement. And there is the truth that no one has ever seen God face to face. Even when Moses was on the mountain, his, he was covered as God passed by because it would be a, a moment of total destruction, annihilation, if he had looked upon the glorious holiness of God as he passed. No one's ever seen God face to face from a human with human eyes. But let me tell you something. Everything you and I need to see, everything you and I need to know, everything we need to understand has been explained, revealed in Christ. You and I don't, you say, well, I've got questions. I'm not sure. I've looked in the Bible and I'm not finding any answers to this question I've got. Well, that may be. And I'm not saying your question can never be answered. Maybe eternity you'll get the answer. But here, let me share with you. Everything we need for life and godliness 
is found in Christ Jesus. Everything. And as such, as such, he is God's genuine, glorious, gracious, oh, so gracious illustration. God has revealed himself. The book of Hebrews begins with the idea that in days gone by, in ages past, he spoke to us through the prophets and he sent them one after another. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through the Son. And that's exactly what we need to be focusing on and what John will continue to point us to. It's not about how much information I can attain so that at a, tri- at a Bible trivia contest, I can be a winner. The information is only given to us in an effort to transform us. And that's what he wants to do in each of our lives. Because the word explain, it's really the word that we get exegete from. You may have heard pastor or other Bible teachers talk about, you have to do the exegesis, not the eisegesis. Exegesis is what does the word of God say to us not do we not the eisegesis, which is what we want to put into the scriptures or weave into the scriptures. It's our perspective shaping and reshaping the text. No, that's not fair. That's not authentic Bible study. Exegesis says, I'm going to just take the word as it is presented, and I'm going to receive it. I'm going to, Ill- I'm going to let the word speak for itself. I'm going to let the word illustrate, explain itself. And what, what, that's why I told you last week, and I'll tell you again many times, words are important. Because not only the words themselves, but what they mean in that time. Because if it didn't mean, the, if it didn't mean something at the moment it was written, it cannot mean it today. And if it could not have an application in that way, then it cannot be applied in that way now. But when we look at the word and let it speak for itself, and we say, this is what thus saith the Lord, then we can say that's what it means both then and now, forever. And now we can apply it to our present situation. And our present situation is this. Everyone, everyone needs to know Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to have the word of God explained to them rightly, relationally, You ought to be able to sit down with somebody and say, this is what Christ means to me. This is how he's made a difference in my life. And this is why I can say that, because the word of God tells me so.